can we walk through your movie rating terminology? Okay. I feel okay. Should we say what I would guess your scale is first? Sure. Let's go with that because I don't know what my scale is. Okay. If I was gonna assign phrases to a scale mm-hmm. of like one to five of how good a movie is, okay, it would be abysmal. Mm-hmm. That's horrible. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. I liked it. <laughs> I love <those> <laughs> <movies>. <laughs> It's fine, and I loved it. So, like, there's no medium. I understand your rating, and I agree with a lot of it. I would have to say, when I say it's my favorite movie, I don't actually mean it's my favorite movie. Or, that's my favorite. That's just a way that I show that I really enjoy something. And plus, I have categories, right? So if I say, that's my favorite, that could be my favorite in that category. And they're they're not broad categories. No, they're super specific categories. This is why I can have so many favorites. Mm -hmm. But I would say that the bottom of your scale is wrong because I think I would have to start with that's truly terrible Mm. because it separates from it's terrible, I love it. Yeah, okay. Because if it's truly terrible, you're not going to like it. But if it's so bad that it's good, that's a great category to be in. Now, it's not a great movie per se, so it still belongs on the low end. And then it's, yeah, I like it, it's fine, which doesn't Mm -hmm. really happen because I, you know, have opinions. Right, right. And then I love it, and then it's my favorite. Okay. I love it is not the top of the scale. Yes. I, I somehow, in the moment, misplaced the fact that you say everything's your favorite. Yeah, everything is my favorite. and welcome back to our podcast how real is that science where we attempt to confirm or refute the legitimacy of science within pop culture i'm nicole and i'm natalie we're stem graduate students interested in science communication but we don't claim to be experts on the topics we're going to discuss we have however done our research and that's the important part folks always do your research So today, because it's the middle of the summer and the heat (laughs) is killing all of us. It's so hot. It's so hot It's miserable. It's horrendous. And it's humid where we live. So it's just like Mm. an absolute Swimming in hot soup. So because it's so hot out, we are going to discuss ocean disaster movies. Now, these are movies where people are out on the ocean and the ocean is the reason that they are in danger. This does not include shark movies or movies that are people on land and the ocean is coming to get them. So we will not be discussing Sharknado. It's for another time. It is an absolutely bonkers movie. Like, we're not going to discuss it, but it's <laughs> right. absolutely we have bonkers. We to talk about it briefly. Just like briefly. <laughs> I still cannot believe we managed to watch the entirety of that movie. Or that there are like six of them. But today, we will be focusing on movies that involve waves and storms doing the damage. Right. So these movies are The Poseidon Adventure from 1972, Poseidon from 2006, and The Perfect Storm from 2000. And at the risk of sounding repetitive here... I love these movies. They're pretty great. And while they all came out a while ago, obviously we will be discussing the plots of the movies, so spoiler warning. 
Let's dive right into the first movie, The Poseidon Adventure from 1972. (laughs) This is a particular favorite of my family. We really enjoy the 70s disaster movies. They're so fun. Watch them. So... (laughs) So this movie follows the passengers of the cruise ship Poseidon on its way from New York City to Greece. It stars Gene Hackman, Ernest Borgnine, Jack Albertson, Shelley Winters, and Red Buttons, who has the best actor name I've ever heard (laughs) in my whole life. So while crossing the Atlantic, the ship's captain is warned that there is an underwater earthquake, which could cause some tsunamis. He wants to slow the ship down so that they don't hit the tsunami. But... Logical. The ship's owner refuses and tells him to go faster because he's losing money. This is such a classic 70s disaster movie move that it absolutely kills me. There is always some irresponsible capitalist who wants to cut corners to make more money. And one of the movie's heroes is always like, but that's not safe. You could kill people. And then it, you know, does. I love that. It's it's. It's a classic trope, and predictably, the ship gets hit with a tsunami, and it flips over completely. Several passengers move through the overturned boat to try and escape, led by Gene Hackman. Obviously, chaos ensues, and people die. Before we get to the science, right off the bat, I have a potentially dumb question. Good. I will probably potentially not answer it. Okay, great. Is there any reason people can't go out one of the doors that lead to the outside of the boat and swim to the surface? I don't understand why they always go up to the top of the boat to get rescued. Mm -hmm. Is this just because it's scary out there? Because that's solid logic. I follow that. Or there are creepy things like sharks, also solid. Or is there actual physics? Like they can't make it to the top or they'll get dragged under. Okay. So I don't technically know, but I can address parts of this. One, in my opinion, if you just find an exit door, you don't know how deep in the ocean you're going to be. So that could be an issue if you have enough breath to make it to the surface. Right. Second of all, Mythbusters has actually addressed the myth of being dragged under by a sinking ship or car or something. Okay, cool. And they've they've debunked it. There's not like a drag force that happens, at least in the way that they tested it. So I don't think it's that. I think it's just trying to stay in a contained environment away from scary things and not go into water that you don't know how deep you're at. <laughs> I mean, like, that's totally solid. And like I said, I probably wouldn't do this. Yeah, but I think you have a good point of, like, they're usually somewhere in the center of the boat, and they don't always know if they are underwater. Like, water might be rushing in. Right. But you might not be underwater, and then if you find a door, you're just like, do I jump ten stories off of this boat? Right, so that's my thing, like... Maybe you get up towards the top, but they're always like, oh, we have to find the only place where the hull has an opening and that's by the propeller or, and I'm just like, aren't there like windows that you can open? I I haven't been on a lot of like cruise ships because I don't like them, Mm -hmm. but I know people have balconies and stuff. And, you know, that's one thing you can at least try is going down like those doors and opening them and seeing hey there we go right there and i don't have to make it to the engine room that's you know on fire and underwater at the same time okay so let's get down to the science okay so first we have underwater earthquakes and tsunamis earthquakes that occur underwater are called submarine earthquakes the earth's surface is comprised of what are known as tectonic plates which move very slowly over magma in the inner mantle of the earth so just pause for a moment right now when I was looking up submarine earthquakes, I was like, why would they call them submarines? 
they're sub but it's submarine like it literally took me a minute and a half to figure this out <laughs> i was like oh cool it's called a submarine earthquake like submarines <laughs> until i was like nicole that word meant something before submarines were invented and it's because they're submarine like mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. all clicked for me and it took way too long love those moments of clarity <laughs> it happens to the best of all us. right Because the plates move, they interact with each other. They can slide against each other or move underneath one another. This movement is what actually causes the earthquakes. Submarine earthquakes are the most common reason for tsunamis. When the seafloor is moved, the surface of the sea rises or lowers, causing a series of waves, which leads to the tsunami. A tsunami is defined by Merriam-Webster as a great sea wave produced especially by submarine earth movement or volcanic eruption. Tsunamis have a long wavelength, which means that there's a long period of time between the crest of one wave and the wave after that. The tsunami can be only a couple of feet high in the open ocean, but can move up to 500 miles per hour. Which is a crazy fast wave. That would be so scary. It's so fast. So when the speed of the wave decreases, the wavelength gets shorter and the height of the wave increases. When a tsunami hits, the area that it hits can be dangerous for several hours, This is only one part of the reason why they're so devastating. Right. People will think that the danger is over, go back to the coastline, only to be hit with another wave. This happened in 1964 in Crescent City, California, and it killed 11 people. So it's pretty clear that a submarine earthquake could cause a tsunami that could flip a ship. And wouldn't that be utterly terrifying? I don't even know what I would do. I definitely watched this movie right before going on my first cruise, and it scared the absolute bejesus <laughs> out of me. Intelligence. I don't know. It was just on TV. I was like, oh, let's watch this. I love disaster movies. I don't know why <laughs> my mother let me do that. Probably because she really liked the movie, too. Sure. So in the movie, after the ship flips, most people are stuck in the ballroom. Gene Hackman, who had previously been characterized as a priest who believes that God helps those who help themselves, and this is very important to the plot. Mm-hmm decides to escape the ship by going to where the rescuers are most likely going to be, the thinnest part of the ship by the propellers. And this is solid logic. Along with several other passengers, he moves through the ship to find the bottom, which is now the top of the ship. And here we get to another major pop point. Air pockets. <laughs> Hot pockets. <laughs> the air pockets. What are we talking about here? So here we're referring to sections of the ship that are technically underwater, but still contain air. Air is less dense than water. So when an enclosed but not airtight area is flipped in water, Mm -hmm. the air rises to the top of the enclosed space. It's like when you flip a cup and place it underwater, and there's still air in the cup. Water wants to be in the space, but because there's air in it, it can't. The only way that the air can then escape is by diffusing through the water one molecule at a time. So you're going to have a time period where there is air in that area. Mm -hmm. This is why even though water is rushing in, there are still areas that have breathable air. Right. This was actually seen recently when a man survived for almost three days inside a ship that had sunk to the bottom of the ocean. There's so many things about that that sound like they can't be true. I know. It's totally crazy and completely scary. He survived because he was able to move water around in his air pocket, which decreased the carbon dioxide in the room. Carbon dioxide moves through water faster than oxygen does. Mm -hmm. So he would keep his oxygen at an acceptable level, but the carbon dioxide would move out of 
the area. Mm. It would be so scary to be stuck at the bottom of the ocean with no way out for two and a half days. I know, and they interviewed him, and he said he could hear, like, ocean creatures <sighs> eating his fellow crewmates. Ew! That's I would horrible. be, I would lose my mind. There's no way I would survive that long. Plus That's the ocean. I can't even imagine. The ocean makes so many weird noises. The ocean is scary. I love the ocean. Yes. But, but it's stuck terrifying. at the bottom? Oh, man. Ugh. Ugh. <sighs> yeah. So the air pockets on the ship could happen, even as the ship was filling up with water. Yep. And because everything was going way too well for this group of survivors, <laughs> the only way to get to the engine room is to swim there because the hallway was underwater. And you know how when you're watching movies, you try and hold your breath while they hold their breath so you can match? Mm-hmm. Just to see if you'd also survive. I would not have made it. <laughs> Either it was the way that they edited it or it was just too long and I wouldn't have made it. I actually timed myself afterwards. So I was like, that's just a ridiculous amount of time to hold your breath. And I only made it a truly sad 45 seconds. See, this is where we need a what like this trend of one shot movies. So we would know how realistic it was. Right. Anyway, <laughs> one of the passengers says she could hold her breath for two and a half minutes, which I feel is a long time. Most people can hold their breath for about 30 seconds to a couple minutes. So this is totally normal, Mm. especially for swimmers and Mm -hmm. people who are trained to hold their breath. I have been landlocked for too long and have lost all ability to hold my breath. However, it's really sad. She ends up dying later, most likely of a heart attack. And her husband is there and she never gets to see her grandson. And it's truly sad. But the rest of the group are able to reach the thinnest part of the ship and are rescued by people cutting through the hull. And again, this actually happened recently. Four members of the cargo ship, the Golden Ray, were rescued when the ship overturned off the coast of Georgia and the United States. They were rescued by the Coast Guard after they heard tapping in the hull. That's just like, ugh. You have like sensitive equipment? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I think it's because they knew that they didn't have for the people, right? Sure. They didn't rescue for the people. So maybe they were listening for signs of life. That makes sense. But you have to whack yeah. to get sounds metal, to come out. Yeah, and sound doesn't travel that well through water unless you have sensitive equipment. But... Well, and the ship wasn't completely overturned. It was just okay. kind of on its side because it was like right on the coast. Mm. And they don't, I don't think they know how it overturned. But still, they had to cut through the hole to get at these people. Right. Which, how do you communicate you're doing? I don't know. There's so many questions. Well, they had a, they cut a small hole and then they put a camera in and I guess walked <laughs> through it. Just imagine a little tiny microscopic camera and you're just like, hmm. Yeah. So they rescued these people through the hole. So. All right. So that brings us to your verdict on the Poseidon adventure. So it's pretty realistic. Everything from the actual disaster to the rescue could happen. Plus, it's just a great movie. Please watch it. Right. But it was remade in 2006 into Poseidon. Starring Kurt Russell, Josh Lucas, Richard Dreyfus, Emmy Rossum, Jacinda Barrett, Mike Vogel, Jimmy Bennett, and Andre Brower. It follows the same plot as the original, but instead of a tsunami hitting the ship, the ship is hit by a rogue wave. Alright, so what's a rogue wave, other than something really emo? I mean, like, it's a really good name. <laughs> a rogue wave is a wave that is at least two times the wave height for the area. Hmm. The wave height is defined as, quote, the average of the highest one third of waves that occur over a given time period. So a wave that is a whole lot bigger than all the other waves that are in the area for that given time. Right. 
Rogue waves most likely form from waves that have different dimensions, such as the length of the wave or the height or crest of the wave, and those interact with and reinforce each other. This can make very large waves that can last for several minutes. Okay, so when storms form waves, they can sometimes develop against the current of the ocean, which can form extremely large waves that are longer lived. Rogue waves weren't actually believed to be real until 1995 when one hit an oil rig in Norway. It was 85 feet high, which is completely insane. So the wave that hits Poseidon in the movie is completely realistic. Yeah, definitely. The other main difference is that the passengers that get out of the ballroom actually get out off the boat by the propeller, get on board a raft, and watch the ship fully sink before they are rescued by choppers. We have basically the same science behind the movie. They hold their breath underwater. Air pockets. Air pockets. So, again, this movie is pretty realistic. I personally prefer the original. It's very 70s. It works better for me. But it's not a bad movie. And both versions of the Poseidon Adventure are based on a book from 1969 by Paul Gallico. One idea is that he actually got the idea for the Poseidon Adventure from the HMS Queen Mary. During World War II, the ship was hit by a rogue wave that was thought to be almost 90 feet high. Jesus. Right? It caused the ship to tilt 52 degrees. <laughs> and if the ship had flipped just three degrees more, it would have flipped over and capsized. How do we have measurements of that? I have absolutely no idea. Somebody had to have done an experiment. But sure. they, the amount of people that were on the Queen Mary, it would have caused... So much more damage than even the Titanic. Mm. That Speaking of, there are a whole field of science historians that do stuff like that. They, they take personal records of events or ships that disappeared and they retrace how they could have drifted through water. They like, know all this geographic, like geoclimate information based on historical reports and can extrapolate data about that. It's super weird. Wow, I way should have gone into that. <laughs> Um, so this is making me never want to get on a boat again. You have to hold on tight because now we're on our last movie, which is actually based on a real life storm in 1991. Good. The Perfect Storm from 2000. This movie is based off of The Perfect Storm, a book published in 1997 written by Sebastian Younger. The book was based on The Perfect Storm, which was a massive storm that devastated the northeast coast of North America in 1991. The movie stars George Clooney, Mark Wahlberg, John Hawks, William Fitchner, Michael Ironside, and John C. Riley, Who is absolutely spectacular in this. He's a good actor. Don't judge him by the Will Ferrell movies. Diane Lane, Karen Allen, and Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. The movie follows the Andrea Gale, a commercial fishing boat from Massachusetts, which was caught in the perfect storm 1991 and lost at sea. Because the fishing boat was lost at sea, it's not really clear what happened to it or its crew. The film dramatizes what could have happened after its last communication. Also, the movie is about a real-life storm, so obviously the science in the movie is pretty realistic. Yeah, obviously. But how the storm actually occurred is super interesting. So the perfect storm was actually multiple storms that converged together to create a larger and more deadly storm. Hurricane Grace moved north in October of 1991 and clashed with the low-pressure system that had moved south from Canada. The storm caused 40 to 80-foot waves along the Atlantic coast before it made landfall in Nova Scotia. The storm killed six fishermen aboard the Andrea Gale. 
It's pretty similar to Superstorm Sandy from 2012, which wrecked the east coast of North America. So the perfect storm was a combination of two systems, a hurricane and a low-pressure system. Let's start with the low-pressure system. First, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, or NOAA, defines a low-pressure system as, quote, an area of relative pressure minimum that has converging winds and rotates in the same direction as the Earth. This is counterclockwise in the northern hemisphere and clockwise in the southern hemisphere. NOAA is the governmental agency that forecasts and warns the public about severe weather. Right. So these low-pressure systems are also known as cyclones. Hurricanes, also known as tropical cyclones, which is just such a fantastic name, (laughs) are also low-pressure systems. So they're both essentially the same system. Right, but in this scenario, they would have varied in intensity. Hurricane Grace was a named hurricane, Mm -hmm. so it was severe. The low-pressure system moving south was not named, so while it was a dangerous storm, it would not have been given the same weight as Hurricane Grace. Let's get into hurricanes. Okay, so as I said, hurricanes are low-pressure systems that form over tropical or subtropical waters. The surface winds of the storm move in a circular motion, which is how it gives hurricanes the typical swirling pattern. There are three types of tropical cyclones. Winds that are less than 39 miles per hour are called tropical depressions, which just is an iconic name. (laughs) Winds of 39 to 73 miles per hour are called tropical storms, and winds of 74 miles per hour or greater are called hurricanes. There are a lot of requirements for hurricanes, but it involves warm ocean waters, differences in temperature with height throughout the atmosphere, moist air 200 miles north or south of the equator, and little change in wind speed. There have been many killer hurricanes throughout history, but the most deadly weather disaster in the United States was the Galveston hurricane in 1900. It made landfall as a Category 4 hurricane in Texas and then turned north, passing through the Great Lakes, New England, and southeastern Canada. A week after it made landfall, it was spotted in the North Atlantic. Which is completely crazy how it <laughs> lasted that long. Yeah. There were between six and 12,000 deaths, and property damage was approximately $30 million. Is that 1900 I money? don't know. I think it's now money. Okay, that makes a little bit more sense, especially if you're approximating anyway. It's not only hurricanes that can cause damage and death. Tropical Storm Allison of 2001 was responsible for 41 deaths and 5 billion in damage. It's the deadliest and most expensive tropical storm to hit the United States. Neither of these storms, or even the perfect storm, were part of the most active hurricane seasons. The most active year for hurricanes in the United States was 2005. The season had 28 storms with 7 major hurricanes. It also tied for the longest season on record. This is the season that contained Hurricane Katrina, which made landfall in Louisiana. It was an extremely intense storm that caused major damage to the South. The movie doesn't really go into depth about the storms, which is a shame because it's super interesting. Yeah, the whole meteorology behind it is insanely cool. And they do have a meteorologist character, but Mm -hmm. he's mostly there to be like, look, the storms are coming. And then you just flash back to George Clooney catching fish. (laughs) So... That's probably my only critique of this movie. Other than that, it's really fun. You have some really great Massachusetts and New England accents. (laughs) And some pretty good acting, but they don't focus on the cool part of the movie, which is the storm. 
Right. So low on the science. And of course, because it focuses on the death of the fishermen, it's very sad. So be aware of that going in. Yeah, they really focus a lot on the families dealing with that which is just it always gets me you know they have one of those sad sea funeral memorial things yeah it just really gets me well that's it for today's episode the poseidon adventure poseidon and the perfect storm are all available to rent on amazon prime please come talk to us on social media about what you thought of today's episode and your favorite storm movies okay we're on twitter at how real Instagram at howreal underscore scipod. And our website, anchor.fm backslash howrealisthatscience. You can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcast, and most other podcasting platforms. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks talking about the science behind astrology. How fun. (laughs) Find out next time on How Real Is That Science. (laughs) 